Good morning. Welcome to the third week in service at New Spring. I'm going to get ramped up in the message here in a minute, but in the first two services, I think I forgot to say this, so I'm just going to get it right out of the box, because at my age, if I don't say it when I remember it, you know, I could lose it. So just a couple things. We have three Christmas Eve services that will be mind-blowing. On Christmas Eve, you can see the times in your worship folder. It's going to be exciting. I know some of you like invited a ton of people. Awesome. We're going to have a great time. And then next weekend is the last message from dreams, but I got to tell you, it's more than just a message. It's going to be an experience. And we'll have the kids in here because we won't have Kids World that day. And, and, and we're going to involve the kids in just the most creative, awesome way. So if you're looking for something to do the weekend after Christmas, I pray you'll be here because you'll just have a wonderful, wonderful time. Okay, that's out of the way. Let me talk about dreams for a moment. We're in a brand new series called Dreams, and all the messages are built around one verse in Scripture. In fact, I don't think I've ever brought a message series in which each one of the messages came from one verse. So let's just go right to that verse right now. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. Many of us have claimed this is a life verse. Others of us, uh, you tell me, you know, in your emails and the conversations that this verse has gotten you through some really, really tough times. It's a wonderful verse. And so each weekend we've talked about it, and I want to read it to you again. This is God talking. God says, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, I'm going to add two verses to this. The next two verses say this. In those days, when you pray, I will listen. Aren't you glad that when you go through tough days, God listens to our prayers? And God says, when you pray, I will listen. And then he said, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. You know, some people look for God in kind of a half-baked kind of way. But God says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. So I want to talk about that this morning. But before I get into today's topic, I want to do a little something I don't normally do. And that is to do some review. And the reason why I want to go back and look at the first two messages is there's a stair-step effect of what we're learning in Jeremiah 29, 11. And, and so today's talk is going to be based on what we've already learned the first two weeks. So in the case that maybe someone's here today and you didn't get a chance to be with us the first two weeks, just give me a little latitude, if you will. And I want to go back and talk about real, real quickly what we talked about the first two weeks. The first week, we looked at the verse itself. And, and what happened in history was that there were people who lived in a land called Judah. These were God's people. In fact, the capital of Judah is Jerusalem, which you probably know is the city of peace. It's God's chosen city, God's chosen people. But these people, that, the people of Judah at this point, were like on a different page from God. For years, they had been worshiping idols and messing God around. So God had been sending his preachers for a long time to say, straighten up or else, for hundreds of years. But they didn't listen. So finally, one day, God came to Jeremiah, who was prophet during this time. And God said, Jeremiah, I'm sorry to have to give you this message, but this is really tough. You need to let the people know the deal's going down. It doesn't matter what they do, even if they pray, no matter what they do, if they say they're sorry, it's over. They've had their opportunity to turn around. They're going to go into captivity. And they were going to go into captivity to the wickedest, meanest power in the world at that time. And it was headquartered in the city of Babylon. And God said to Jeremiah, it's over. And Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because the message just broke his heart. Because after all, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's doing wrong, you at least want to be able to say, hey, if you turn around, things will get better. But Jeremiah finally had the message in which he had to say, it doesn't matter what you do now, the deal's going down. God came to Jeremiah, and in, in Jeremiah chapter 21, God said to him, I want you to tell the people this. Tell them they have a choice between life or death. If you want to choose life, God said, I want you to, really, it's an unusual thing. God said, all the people who want to live, they need to go willingly into captivity to the Babylonians and let themselves be carried away to Babylon. 
And he said, the people who choose death, they will stay in Jerusalem. Because God said, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to use the Babylonians to do it. God said he's going to destroy his, his own city. So obviously, he was saying to the people who would listen to him and obey him, go willingly into Babylon because I'm going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. And so as I've shared with you the first two weeks of this series, not everybody can claim Jeremiah 29:11. When God says, I know the plans that I have for you and they're good, he's talking to people who obey him. He's talking to people who will listen to him. And so the people, you know, who obeyed God, they willingly allowed themselves to be taken captive, and they found themselves in a city where they never wanted to be. They were in a place where they thought their dreams would not come true. I know up till now, that's just ancient history, isn't it? It's like first few minutes of my message, like watching the History Channel. (laughs) Let's bring it up to date. Because we're not, hopefully, ever going to be carried away into Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq. But here's the thing. Many of us have been carried away to an environment where we don't want to be where our dreams we don't think are going to come true. Maybe it's the breakup of a relationship. Maybe it's financial reversal. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Could be a friend that turned out not to be faithful. Could be problems with one of our kids or problems with our parents. And we find ourselves in a place where we say, I don't want to be here. I, I didn't, I, when I was a kid, I didn't want to be where I am right now. I didn't dream I would be here. And, and that's where these people from Judah were. They were in Babylon. I don't know what you do when you're in a situation where you don't want to be, but I know for me, I, I'm just like saying, okay, I want this to resolve. I want this to be over. I want that person to love me again. I, I want to be understood for what I really meant. I, I want to have a job. I, I want to feel healthy again. I'm, I, and what happens to me a lot of times, if I'm in a situation where things are not going well for me, it's almost like I have permission to just veg. I have permission to just chill and say, when when things are right for me again, I will function. And God knew that was what the people in Judah were going to do when they were in Babylon. They were just going to be there waiting for God to resolve the cord. But God wanted them to know it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. And so here's what God was saying to Jeremiah. Tell the people don't sit by the phone waiting for a message because it's not going to come. God said to Jeremiah, tell the people this. Go to Babylon, get married, build houses, raise kids, find spouses for your kids, have grandkids, pray for the peace of Babylon. And in, in the first message, what did we learn? We learned two words that God has for all of us when we're in an environment where we don't want to be, where things are bad and dreams are not coming true. God got it down to two words, and we got it the first week, just function. And I know you guys get it because you write me and you tell me. I see you in, you know, in the mall. In fact, this morning I was at McDonald's and somebody was a new springer, and he said, just function. I mean, I hear it all the time. We got it, didn't we? Because, see, that's a powerful message. Because as I say, when things are going bad, I don't feel like functioning. People talk to me sometimes and say, Mark, my wife walked out. I, I just don't feel like I can go to work. I mean, my relationship is broken up. I just don't want to see anybody. I just want to go home, turn out all the lights, and sit in a dark room. Because functioning is hard. But what, what happens when we go home, we turn out the lights and sit in a dark room? It doesn't change anything. It just, like, causes us to die on the inside. So here's what God was saying to the people of Judah. Go to Babylon. Get on with life just function. Let me take care of everything. Why? Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. I, just keeping it real here. I, I've gotten it ang- angry at God. I've tried to tell you guys about some, some times in my life when I've gotten angry at God. And maybe some of you have too. Every once in a while, somebody says, Mark, I've never gotten angry at God. I know that problem, person probably has a problem with lying too. <laughs> no, seriously, maybe, maybe, maybe. But many of us have gotten mad at God. And Why? Because what happens is we're interpreting the future through present circumstances. 
We're looking at the future through the lens or through the prism of what our experience has been and what we anticipate, the problems that we anticipate for the future. And God was saying to to Jeremiah, tell the people, don't get angry at me because I know the future. When God said, I know the plans that I have for you, we said that the Hebrew word know means to know by seeing. God said, I wrap the present. I've already seen your future. I know what it is. It's great. It's not for disaster. It looks like disaster. But the plans that I have for you, I've already seen them, and they're awesome. So you just go ahead and function. God says, I've already got it wrapped. The present's wrapped. It's under the tree. I know what's in there. I've already seen it. It's great. And then God said, I know the I know the plans. The word plans means machinations. I met a lady after the first service who's an engineer, and she was telling me she loved that. And all you engineers out there, you got to love that. God said, I'm the engineer. I did the engineering. Looks like pieces and parts to everybody else, but God said, I'm the great engineer. I know how the pieces fit together. You say, well, Mark, my life is just broken pieces. It's just stuff, and I don't think it's ever going to be right again because my, my life is laying in pieces on the ground, and God's saying, hey, I know how the pieces fit together. And I've lived long enough, I've watched God put pieces together I didn't think fit. At the time, I thought, why is this happening to me? In fact, there have been times when the pieces on the ground said my life was over, and yet God came along, and the master engineer that he is, he started putting them together. And I'm saying, hey, you know what? That actually fit after all. God said, I know the plans. I know because I've already seen them. I know the engineering. I know the machinations. And God said, it's great. I've already seen the future, and it's good. Just function. That was week one. Last week. We climb to another step. Because we said the challenge is not just functioning. The challenge is keeping on functioning when things don't seem to resolve. And some of you right now are right there. You're in the middle of it. You've been functioning for a good while. And you know, the temptation at this point is just to throw in the towel and say, well, I don't think it's ever going to change. We talked last week about what Michael Strahan said last year in Green Bay. Actually, this year, early in January in Green Bay, when the Giants were playing Packers in Lambeau Field in the frigid conditions below zero. And when the on-field interviewer asked him what the guys were talking about regarding the weather, he said, we're in it. We might as well win it. And that's what, that's what you and I need to think about. When, we are, when we're in Babylon, we're in a situation where we don't think our dreams are going to come true. Hey, you know what? The worst thing is to be in Babylon and then give up and just say, hey, I'm not going to win. I'm just going to go down under the water. There's something about when you're in the middle of it and things are going badly, just saying, okay, I'm going to keep functioning. And why? Why do we keep functioning? Because we saw last week our God is a big God. In case you weren't here last week, God was talking to a king. And this guy was not a good guy, but God was trying to get him to, like, come around. And God said, hey, I'm going to do great things for you. And and God said, ask for a sign. Ask for something big. Every once in a while I talk to somebody and they'll say, well, Mark, I don't want to ask. I don't want to trouble God. You know how you trouble God? For asking too small. I mean, after all, I mean, he spoke the universe into existence. He wrote the codes for DNA. He calls the stars by name. He knows when a sparrow falls out of the sky. He knows the number of hairs on our head, which in my case is declining balance. God knows everything. Your problems are not a burden to him. They're important to him, but they're not a burden. And God said to this guy, ask big. And God said, I don't want to trouble you. And God said, ah. And then you remember what we saw last week? God said, I'll show you big. He said, here's the sign I'm going to give you. A virgin will have a baby. That's what we're about to celebrate on Thursday. When you're going through the trial, keep functioning because God is big. You say, Mark, I don't think it's ever going to work out. How big do you think God is? That's the question. Enough review. Let's get to this week. Let me tell you how I am. And you may be much stronger than I am, but let me just tell you my problem. When I'm really going through it, when my life craters in some particular fashion, 
Some dream that I've had doesn't come true. It doesn't look like it's going to come true. Here's what I say. I say something like this. I don't mean not verbalize it, but it's inside here. I say, it's everything I can do just to what? Survive, yeah. It's everything I can do just to function, just to survive. I'm going to be a survivor. And by the way, that's not a bad term. Because we use it a lot in our culture today. But it's everything I can do just to keep my nose above water. And, and here's what I'll think. I'll say something like this. When my life comes back to normal, I'll start being productive again. Because this thing is like hit me in the solar plexus. It's knocked me down. And I, everything, I mean, it's, everything I'm doing, I'm doing just to survive. So I'm going to try to make it through this. And when my life is whole again, when life is back to normal, when people love me, when people understand me, when good things are happening again, when things resolve, then I'll become productive again. What we're going to learn today is that's just backward. Because what the Bible teaches us is this, and what history teaches us is this. Sometimes the most productive times in our lives will be when we're in Babylon. That's what God was saying to them. Don't just veg, be productive. Go there, get married, have kids, build houses, plant gardens, you know, find mates for your kids and have grandkids. God was saying you're in Babylon, be productive there. God said, I care about you. When you talk, I'll listen. I want to take you back to the book of Genesis chapter 41. My favorite character in the Old Testament is a dude named Joseph, and I absolutely love talking about him. Joseph, and I gave you the story in week one. Let me just breeze through this real quickly. Joseph was one of the patriarchs. He was the 11th son of Jacob, who was the father of 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. But Joseph was next to the youngest son, and his brothers absolutely hated him. They, his older brothers specifically, because he was, Joseph was his dad's favorite make a long story short, his brothers sold him. I mean, they, they wanted to kill him, but they said, we can't kill him. Let's just sell him. And they sold him to slave traders, and Joseph became a slave in Egypt at the age of 18. And for the next 12 years, Joseph would go through a series of unfortunate events. He would go up, and then he'd come back down. He would have good things happen, then bad things would happen. But it was like he was trapped in this twilight zone of unfortunate events. First of all, he found himself a slave in the house of a very powerful, rich military man. And because Joseph was diligent, he rose to the ranks until he became the number one slave. Life was good for a while. But then this guy's wife, you know, started flirting with Joseph. And when he wouldn't respond to her sexual advances, she got mad and claimed that he tried to rape her. And Joseph got thrown in jail. And while he was in jail, two of the king's servants came in. They were incarcerated. They had dreams. By the way, did I tell you God gave Joseph the power to interpret dreams? Joseph interpreted their dreams, and the butler, whose dream was that he would get back and get his position restored, he told Joseph, when I get out of the prison, I'm going to tell the Pharaoh about you, and he's going to set you free because you're an innocent man. But of course, he got back to the palace. He forgot about Joseph. Just a series of unfortunate events. I just carried you through about 12 years of Joseph's life. But you know the story how that the Pharaoh one time had a dream and didn't know how to interpret it. And the butler came out and said, hey, there's a guy down in prison who knows how to interpret dreams. The Pharaoh said, get him out here. And Joseph interpreted the dream. And part of that dream was about the economic future of Egypt. And Joseph said, here's what you need to do during some tough times so that in good years, by the way, don't you wish we had some Josephs in Washington who knew what to do, right? And, you know, so the Pharaoh was saying, you know, we don't have anybody like that here. And in, in a matter of minutes, Joseph went from being a prisoner to prime minister. The king took his ring off, which, by the way, meant Joseph had power to make any decision he wanted to make in Egypt. Most powerful, most influential, at least, man in the world. 
So by this point in Joseph's life, he's 30 years old. He's living in a big palace, driving a Ferrari, wearing Armani, got bling all over the place. And, and the king gives him the most beautiful gal in the kingdom to be his wife. Man, you talk about somebody that, you know, you talk about your reality shows. You talk about somebody, their lifestyles, they used to do, have the old show, they're rich and famous. Here's Joseph. And then beyond that, it's not long before his wife gets pregnant. And, and so he, the, the firstborn, uh, the time comes for the baby to be born. Joseph's there, you know, but this time he's very, very big. And all the, all the satellite trucks are out there. They're just like watching all the information. The media's out there, you know, and waiting for the announcement of the birth of this royal kid. This, you know, everybody's excited about it because after all, Joseph came. He wasn't even an illegal immigrant. He came as a slave. And now he's the most important man in the kingdom. And he's about to have a baby and everybody's excited about it. And the boy's born did any of you name names to your kids that people just didn't understand? You had to explain, this is why I named this kid this? Wow, Joseph did, because they, they said, sir, what, what are you going to name the boy? And Joseph said, we're going to call him Forget. Sometimes I think my parents could have named me that for a different reason. But Joseph named the boy Manasseh, which means to forget, because Joseph said, God has made me forget all, all my trouble. It wasn't long before his wife got pregnant again, and she had another son. And, and when they asked Joseph, what are you going to call this boy? This is what I want to talk about this morning. And this is in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph decided to call this boy Ephraim. And let me just read to you the scripture so that you can hear it as the Bible gives it. In, in Genesis 41 verse 52, he named his second son Ephraim for he said, God, and this is huge, has made me fruitful in the land of my adversity or my grief. Now, I, let, me, let me just camp there for a moment. When Joseph talked about the land of his grief or the land of his adversity, some of you are going to identify with this. Others of us may not be able to. Because some of us have had, you know, episodes of adversity or episodes of grief. It didn't last long. Something went wrong, and then everything was fine again. But I wonder if I'm talking to anybody here today who understands what Joseph meant when he said the land of my adversity. In other words, the landscape of his life was characterized by adversity so much so that Joseph said, Problems is my address. <laughs> Anybody feel like that? Problems is my address. I lived there. For 12 years, he had lived in Egypt. It had been a land of adversity. But remember what I said a few moments ago? I said, when I'm going through hard times, I tend to say, when I get out of this, then I'll start being productive. But think about what Joseph named Ephraim. He said, in my adversity, God has made me fruitful. Study history. Study the Bible, study secular history, study any history you want to. And here's what you'll discover is that some of the people who made the greatest advances for good to benefit mankind, their ideas for changing the world came out of a bad experience. I'm about to get to the core of this morning's message. In the 85th Psalm, the psalmist is writing about a certain group of people. And I just want to read to you what he said. I'm reading this out of the Amplified Version. He said, blessed is the man whose strength is in you. Passing through the valley of weeping, or Baca, they make it a place of springs. Now what David is talking about here is people who go through a particular valley. They were travelers. They weren't going to stay in the valley of Baca. They were traveling through, which I'm glad to read. But Baca there means sorrow or suffering. And David said there was a particular group of people, and they're very happy. They're, th these are the people who know how to be happy. And what do they do? When they go through the valley of tears, they make that place a different place. Oftentimes, we see ourselves as victims. 
Because we go through hard times and we, we sort of implode or we get off into self-pity. And for anybody who will listen to us, we will tell them the horrible things that are happening to us and the unfair way that people are treating us. And I'm not trying to give anybody a difficult time of day because Lord knows I've done that. But David said there's a group of people. And these are people that, that going through sorrow, it doesn't tell them what they are. These are people who, when going through the valley of Baca, they transformed the place. In one translation, the Bible says, happy are the people who go through the valley of sorrow because they dig a well. Wells were very precious to people in those days because, after all, they didn't, they didn't have loves. They didn't have McDonald's. They didn't have, you know, places to stop on a long trip. They didn't have service stations. It was so important to find water. And David said, there are a group of people that when they go through the valley of sorrow, when they go through the valley of suffering, they don't see themselves as victims. They start looking for a shovel. And they say, somehow we're going to dig a well for other people when they go through the sorrowful valley that I'm in, that they'll be able to find refreshment. Those are the people who change the world. There was a woman named Ann Byler. Ann grew up in an Amish Mennonite community in the north central part of the United States. Didn't go past the ninth grade. Of course, obviously never went to college. The only thing she ever did, you know, in a sort of an economic kind of way was she baked pies and stuff to sell at the county fairs and things. When she was 19 years old, she married a 21-year-old boy named Jonas. And they, by this time, even though they'd grown up in an Amish community, they had gotten into an evangelical church. And they started getting involved with youth work and stuff. And they just sort of, sort, of, sort of saw their lives as being sort of ordinary, nondescript, just a couple of people living on any street in the United States, just going through life. But in 1975, they went through the Valley of Baca. They had a two-year-old daughter. And this little girl was just precious, but one day she was chasing after her aunt who was driving a tractor, and a horrible farm accident happened. The tractor ran over a little girl and killed her. If any of you have ever lost a child or you know somebody who's lost a child, you know they can often put a deep strain on the marriage because you have a mom and a dad who are going through inexplicable grief and sometimes they don't know how to talk to each other. And they retreat into their own worlds and that happened to Anne and Jonas. It was like they were strangers living in the same house. It was like they lived in the house but never talked to each other. And Anne at this point was suicidal and wanting to end her life. And she had gone to one particular counselor But this counselor abused her. Just, oh, mercy, you talk about going through the valley of tears. And when she was ready to just end it all, her husband one day talked her into going to a counselor. And while she was going to this counselor, she experienced a spiritual breakthrough. And their marriage came back together. And being in a, in a kind of closed community such as they lived in, once their story was out for everybody to hear and that God had transformed her life through counseling, there were friends who like began to beat a path to their door and, and they would just come by and say, can you talk to us? And they began to pour out stories that had been covered up, stories that, you know, in that kind of community nobody talked about. And they would just ask Ann and Jonas, can you help us? And, and Jonas began to have a dream of starting a counseling center where people could be helped as they had been helped, but he knew he didn't know how to talk to these people. And so he and Ann, they said, you know what we need to do? We need to start a counseling center somehow where we can treat people for free who are having troubles. And he said, I need to go to college and learn how to be a counselor. Well, of course, somebody had to pay the bills. (laughs) And the only experience Ann had was baking pies, but she said, you know what? If God has put this on us, there's got to be a way. 
So she rented a little stand in a, you know, one little country area where they sold vegetables and stuff. She rented a little stand, and she began to sell everything from ice cream to pizza. There was one product, though, that people just loved. She'd started making, like the Pennsylvania Dutch do, she, she, she started making pretzels. She said at first they were terrible, but one day the shipping company that was supposed to send them the ingredients, they didn't send the ingredients on time, and she said they had to figure it out as they went, and, and Jonas started adding a little this and a little that. By the way, it's still secret to this day what he added. And the thing blew up. And my guess is if you're in a mall anywhere in the United States or about 13 other countries, you have a hard time walking down the halls of the mall with passing up that smell from Annie Ann's pretzels, don't you? Last year they did $309 million worth of business. But a few years ago, they said, hey, you know what? This, it wasn't our dream to start this company. This dream was just a means to an end. So they sold the company, and today they're devoting full time to their counseling center. 2,300 appointments last year, free if people have no money on a sliding scale if they do. God, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, it would have been so easy for Ann and Jonas just to go, just to retreat, because you talk about the valley of Baca, I mean, going through the loss of their baby and their marriage being stressed and Ann being abused by a counselor. I mean, all these things that could have destroyed them, but what do they do? They look for a shovel. And you know what I learned from that story? I mean, God said, blessed are the people who do that are blessed. Well, I'd say that was blessed, wouldn't you? A girl with a ninth grade education figuring out a recipe for pretzels as she went along. One of the most successful businesses in the world. That's what God will do. See, when you and I going through the valley of Baca, because that's what Jesus knows about. He went through the valley of Baca on the cross. But what did he do while he was there? He transformed the world. When you and I, when we're going through hard times, and we start looking for a shovel to dig a well for somebody else, God comes along, and I think he opens up his checkbook when that happens. I don't mean just money. I'm talking about making a way. Happy are those who, when they walk through the valley of Baca, they leave a well. I'm going to tell a story this morning that is the most awkward story that I could possibly tell. I don't think I've ever told it at New Spring. A handful of my closest friends know it. My family knows it. Staff. It's just, an, an, to be honest with you, it's hard for me to tell it this morning because it's, it's something that happened in my life that I would love to just forget and not, and, and not even think that it ever happened. You guys are always writing me, telling me what New Spring has done in your life. You write me, and many of you tell me that you've gone through bad experiences in church, and maybe you never, were, went, to, you never went to church, but you just came here, and, and your life has just been transformed, and how you love what this church, I mean, people just write me that. Could I tell you, if you'd come here five or six years ago, chances are you wouldn't feel that way. You might feel very different. We were a very traditional church. I've been here since 1985, and I blame myself for it, because even if it wasn't my point of view, at least I fostered that. Have any of you ever been in a traditional church where it's like the moment you walk in the doors, you know that there's kind of a secret code to being part of that place? There's like a secret handshake. There's a particular jargon. And whether the church wants to do it or not, there's sort of this tacit communication that if you're, that if you're like us, you can belong here. Have any of you ever been in a church like that? I'm ashamed to say, and it's my fault, that if you come to our church several years ago, that that's, perhaps might have been your experience. 
But I know in the beginning of 2004, it's almost been five years ago, in the beginning of 2004, you can call it a midlife crisis or whatever you want to call it, it's like God just put in my heart this sense of holy discontent. We had about 1,100 people who were coming here on a weekend. By this time, we had a television ministry over this beautiful facility. We had a great location. But I was spending most of my time when I stood on stage talking to the already convinced. And I just had this overwhelming burden in my heart that if a church was to be what God really wanted it to be, it would be the kind of church that wouldn't erect barriers to tell people to stay out until they were like us. It would be the kind of church that built bridges to people who needed God. And in order to do that, a church would have to think about all of its environments because the church would have to ask itself, do we do church for ourselves to make ourselves feel good? Or or do we do church as a way to reach out to people who maybe don't know God or maybe had a relationship with God when they were little and walked away because of stuff? And I even brought a message in April of 2004, a little series called Bridge Builders, Barrier Erectors. And I thought I was just stating the obvious truth, but what I didn't know was I declared war. And by this time, we were already starting to adapt the environments for our kids' ministry and and a worship ministry. And I knew things were tense. But I also knew what God had put on my heart as a vision. But I just believed that as, as I was communicating, I thought people are picking it up and they're seeing the obvious nature of why it is that God wants us to do what he's calling us to do. But I remember I had a, one of our deacons asked if the deacons could have a meeting with me. Well, up to that time, I'd always called all the deacons together, but this is a time where the deacons said, one of the deacons said, we need to have a meeting with you. And so I figured perhaps they just wanted some clarification on some of the things that we're doing. And I went into a room and sat down and what appeared to me, or as I reflect back on it, seemed to be clearly orchestrated in a sort of tag team effect. Some of the deacons began to tell me, in no uncertain terms, how wrong they thought I was. That I should have asked them about the direction of the church before I changed things. Perhaps that's logical, but it seemed to cross a line at that point. Because a couple of the deacons looked at me and said, we feel like your time here is basically over. One of the deacons looked at me and said, There were kings in the Old Testament who were good when they were young, but they became bad as they got old. never saw myself as a king, but it was the darkest moment in my life. I've been here since 1985, and, and people are always so kind to me, much too kind to me. Nobody ever talked to me that way. And I didn't know what to say, so I just basically sat there and listened. I remember two of our deacons at that meeting spoke up and So they believed I was following God, and those two guys probably can't remember their words, but I can remember them word for word. And I can still see myself as I got in my car to drive home that night. And I went home, and I sat down in a rocker recliner in my basement, and I was in shock. I can remember this. You guys know how I am. I can't be still. I couldn't move. I thought, and just keeping it real, do you know what was in my heart at that moment? self pity. Total self-pity. I sat in my chair, and here's what I thought. I said, God, I didn't want to come to Kansas. I didn't ask for this job. I mean, the church contacted me for three years before I'd even be open to it. And I thought, is this? I mean, I've tried to sacrifice. I've tried to be 
honest. I've tried to, you know, I've been faithful to my wife. I've been, you know, I've, when other churches, larger churches, sometimes several times our size tried to call me the way to pastor, I just pushed them aside because I felt like God had led me here. And I was thinking, is this what I did all that for? And then my mind went to thinking this. I thought, God, I, I'm just listening to you. I, I'm trying to do what you want me to do. And I'll tell you the one that just really like hit the nail on the head in my thinking as I was going through the litany of things I had to feel pity about for myself. I thought, God, surely anybody with a clue would know that I'm not getting anything out of this. There's nothing beneficial for me. I mean, after all, if you want to go through the Valley of Baca, you just try to transition an entrenched traditional Baptist church. That'll put you through the Valley of Tears. (laughs) And I thought, I've just listened to all this invective when in reality, I'm not going to get anything out of this. Just believed I was listening to you. So I'm sitting there and I'm just still, and at this point, I'm thinking, I am so ready to go back to Texas. And my cell phone rang. I figured it was somebody who was in the meeting. But when I answered it, it was a pastor many states away. And he wasn't just crying, he was, I could tell he was convulsing. And he began to tell me about a personal temptation he was going through, a struggle in his life. And as he wept, I mean, I was just trying to sort out what he was saying. He was saying, Mark, I knew if there was one guy in the country I could call and who wouldn't tell other people but a guy that I could talk to and know that you would care about me. He said, if I knew there was one guy in this country I could call, I knew I could call and talk to you. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, this is crazy. I have just gone through the worst experience of my life. I've listened to guys I thought were friends. I I, I listened to guys say these awful things to me. And now, God, you want me to talk to this guy? And just just being honest with you, hardest thing I've ever done in my life, I think, was blocking out what had just happened to me and focusing on this guy's problem and talking to him for an hour and helping him work through this issue, which, by the way, God brought him through wonderfully. When I shut my phone... I knew I'd gotten a message from God. Because see, what I'd been thinking right before that phone rang, I thought, I got two options here. I could either mark Anthony this thing, which I meant by that I could just bring this thing to light and talk about it. But by that time, God was already bringing people into our church. And who wants to go through a church that's having issues and difficulty? The other thing I could do is to try to find some way to find middle ground or capitulate. But Lord knows, there's enough gutless wonders in the pastorate already who try to do half do what God wants them to do. And I was thinking, which one do I do? <laughs> when I closed the phone, I knew I'd heard from God. Because here's what, and it wasn't out loud. I don't want to freak you out. It was just like an impression that God put clearly on my heart and mind. God was saying, Mark, what I called you to do was help people. That's why I had this guy call you. What I called you to do is help people. You help people. I'll take care of this. For those of you who were here in those days, You'll know we never talked about that. It was hard. I just stepped up, kept talking. We stayed right on course for the vision. 
God worked. In fact, last weekend, we had almost 3,200 people here. I mean, God is doing incredible things at New Spring Church. But I can tell you, the turning point, the turning point, I honestly believe for what has happened here, happened when that phone rang that night, and God said to me, you handle this my way. You're going through the Valley of Baca. You just dig a well. I'll take care of everything else. And that is what I want to tell you today. If you're going through the valley, look for a shovel. You say, Mark, me? Somebody needs to dig a well for me. No. You dig a well. The people who have influenced this world the most, study history, the people who have influenced this world for good have been people who have gone through personal sorrow and they've dug a well for the rest of us. There's something therapeutic about it. God opens up his checkbook and you'll be happy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you've taught us today. Lord, there's a part of me that when I communicate this message, I know personally how very, very difficult it is to wrap our arms around this. As you help me, I would ask you to help all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Still praying with me, please. You know, guys, in four days, we're going to celebrate Christmas. I don't think Jesus was born on December 25th, but what difference does it make? He was born. God sent Jesus into our world on a rescue mission. He came into our world born of the Virgin Mary, so he was human. He was also of God, so he was God and human at the same time. See, the problem that you and I have is that we're sinners. And you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Man, I can't even be perfect for 30 minutes. And God knew that. So you know what he did? He sent his son into the world to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived for 33 years, and I'll tell you, the devil threw everything in the phone book at him, and yet he never failed. And yet when he finished living that life, he lay down on a Roman cross and let them nail nails into his hands and feet, and he suffered for six hours. And the way God looked at it, our sin was placed on him so that his good life could be given to us. A trade, wonderful trade. So how do you get it? You say, Mark, do I need to become part of New Spring Church? Hey, we'd love to have you here, but that won't get you to heaven. You say, well, I'll start trying to do better, but what will we do about all the bad things we've done? It's so simple. God says it's a gift. Just ask for it. Ask for it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never invited Christ into your life, I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words. But if you pray this prayer in your heart, God will listen to you. You can use your own words if you wish. But in in case you'd like to pray with me, I'm going to pray this prayer slowly. And if you're ready for Jesus to come into your heart, if you're ready to be forgiven, if you're ready to start life over again, hey, Jesus can do it for you. Would you give him a chance? If you would, let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. I believe you died for my sin. I believe you arose from your grave. Please save me and forgive me. Thank you for keeping your word and saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And I know that happens so fast. You could say, Mark, I'm not sure what hit me. I want you to know what hit you. I have a gift I want to give you. In fact, if you'll let me, I'll mail this to you. Just a packet with some DVDs and great information about how to follow Jesus free. If you just prayed to receive Christ, my gift to you. If you want me to mail this to you, just take your worship folder. There's a detachable part. Just put your name and address on there. 
and just check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. You can drop it in the offering bag, drop it in the boxes by the back doors or at the bottom of the staircase. If it's got your address, I'll mail it to you this week. Take a little longer because this is a holiday weekend. If you don't want to wait, you don't have to. You got a few extra minutes. If you prayed to receive Christ today, I'm going to point to those two middle doors. There's guest services, a new spring store right beyond those doors. All you have to do is just take the card to them and say, I prayed with Mark. That's all you have to say. You can give it to them. They'll give this to you today.